need to model that we don't need to have all the answers. I think people are afraid to talk about their faith because they're afraid that they're not going to have the answers to the questions that are going to come up. And that completely like, you know, makes us freeze. And that's our fault as leaders. We get up on the stage and we feel like we need to have all the answers. We're not good at saying, I don't know, or let's learn that together, or let's look at a couple different, here's some different thoughts and like, let's make some. So I think we need to, as leaders, model the safe place to ask questions and not have all the answers and have that kind of dialogue. And that I think would free up our young people to, you know, be unleashed into the cities and just have these great conversations that they don't feel the pressure of, of needing all the answers. And if they don't, they go, let's go learn that together. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today, we get to sit down with my friend, Michael McDonald. Mike is the Director of Global Focus and Strategic Relationships for The Bible Project. Now, most of our listeners know of The Bible Project, but if you don't know about it, you have to check it out. The Bible Project is a crowdfunded, nonprofit, creative studio based out of Portland, dedicated to communicating that the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. And I think they are one of the most significant ministries working today. Not just the content that they are creating in so many different languages, but also their ministry ethos and philosophy. I think their approach represents a new way forward for ministries in this era. And so we talk about their work a bunch in this interview. And we're also going to have Tim Mackey, the main voice for the Bible Project on the show to share more about it in the next few months. Now, prior to joining the Bible Project, Mike's work included community empowerment projects focused on education, finance projects, conflict resolution, and economic development work in countries all over the world. And Mike has led thousands of Christian leaders on more than 200 trips around the world. He's an inspiring, authentic voice and someone who's constantly challenged me to think differently. And that's why I had such a difficult time deciding what to lean into in this conversation, because Mike is someone I want to hear his thoughts on so many different themes. And so we ended up chatting about missions, both locally and globally. We talked a lot about what Mike's learned through his friendship with Bob Goff and why he feels called himself to a supporting role, like not being the number one guy. And I thought that was an important conversation to have and something I hope benefits you. I just love sitting down with Mike and I hope you enjoy the conversation today. Hey, Mike, so grateful for you making time to be with us today. Appreciate you, man. Thanks so much, Jason. This is a a joy, man. I love it. Dude, you are part of some projects that I just find so interesting and inspiring. And so could you just give us a window into some of the different projects and organizations that you're working alongside these days? Oh, man. I mean, right now I have the privilege of getting to work with uh, the team at the Bible Project, which is just a really beautiful um, team here in Portland and a project that's, you know, not just focus here in the U.S., but all around the world. And so that's a blast. Um, I get to work with, you know, our friend Bob Goff a lot with uh, Dream Big and Love Does and um, have gotten the privilege of traveling around the world and, and figuring out how to serve and care for and love people around the world, which has just been great. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I get roped into some fun some fun things along the way. Um, I still don't know why they invite me, but I show <laughs> up and I, I, you know, try my best to play a part of the team. So, Oh, man. Well, it's incredible to watch. And uh, there's so much of your story I want to chat through. Do you think for those that are just getting to know you, you could give us sort of the like fly over some of the movements of your life? Because, you know, you talked about where you've landed, but I know there's some really cool steps along the way that have got you to this place. And so just talk about a bit of your journey in ministry and in business that got you to this place. 
Yeah, I mean, the very quick flyover is um, I didn't grow up in the church at all. I grew up a Baha'i. So I grew up um, mm-hmm. in a, a home that was very practicing Baha'i, which is a Middle Eastern religion out of Iran. Um, a lot of Persians in our community, a lot of folks that had um, come out of Iran during the persecution of the Baha'is into Canada. I grew up in Nelson, B.C., so I'm a Canadian, even though I'm down here in Portland. Grew up in a small little hippie draft-dodging ski town um, in the Kootenays there. And uh, moved to the city, moved to Calgary um, to just kind of wear it when I graduated at 17. Um, got involved in some business stuff, was managing a clothing store Realized I couldn't work in a mall for the rest of my life. And so I went to Turkey on a kind of find myself trip. Like, what do I need to do? I grew up without a dad. My dad left really early mm-hmm. when I was three, had a kind of a gnarly stepdad situation. And so I didn't have anybody in my life that was leading me or helping guide, you know, the decisions that I should make about my future, going to college, any of that stuff. And went to Turkey. That's where I met a missionary uh, in Cappadocia that actually ended up sharing the gospel with me. And, and that's a whole massive story, but just basically came to faith in my own kind of way. Didn't even know at that point, like, you know, I didn't know Holy Spirit, Trinity. I didn't know anything other <laughs> than Jesus is King. I read through the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount just kicked my butt. I'm like, this is the guy that I want to follow. I didn't know that he was God. I didn't, like, all the things wow. that you just have to be like, here's the steps to become a Christian. All I knew is, like, I'm following the wrong dude, and I need to follow Jesus. <laughs> And um, came back to Canada, tried to go to a bunch of churches, couldn't find one. I felt like they were super clicky. And that's, that's on me. I think I already had that pre-thought around churches that uh, they were really judgmental and Christians were really judgmental. And so I just found that because you're mm. looking for it. You know, it's like you almost pre-think uh, yeah, uh, that into, the, into existence. And so I didn't go to church for like two years. I read the Bible. I, um, you know... And then at some point, I actually ended up opening up, I was a musician, I opened up for a band called Drench, and they were a worship band out of Edmonton, hmm. and they happened to play music at a church there, and I ended up going to that church, and that's where I kind of stepped into church community for my first time, and uh, started leading some small groups, and kind of grew in wow. my path of discipleship. Um, at that point, I was managing restaurants up in Canada um, with the brand Joey's, and so um, I'd opened up a few up in Edmonton, worked down ones in Calgary, come out to Vancouver, like kind of bounced around to help with that. And then I helped bring the brand um, down to uh, the States. So I came down to Portland. Uh, we had bought a brand called Kachina Kachina. That's what made me move to Portland. And then I joined Imago Day Community, which was a kind of a newer church plant at this point uh, in Portland. And that was kind of my step. But about a year and a half, I got I, I left the restaurant, ended up joining Imago as a, as a staff person to kind of help mm. with um, their business stuff, and then also some of their home home church small small group stuff. That's where I met, and so this is really fast. But through that, I met um, one of my best friends. Oh, I don't know, Steve Opperman, who's another Canadian, uh, incredible furniture designer down in LA now. But yeah, he started dating um, this gal Rebecca, who he's now married to, and Rebecca's best friend is my now wife. And that's how I met John Mark uh, and Phil and everybody from from that whole church. So John Mark and Phil had just planted Solid Rock, they, mm-hmm. uh, which was pre-Bridgetown. And they I had met them kind of through my now wife. And um, they offered me a job to come on and lead uh, home, home communities at uh, Solid Rock. And then that turned into a global ministry. And 
all along the way. And then, yeah, I mean, Bob came into that picture and um, Amago. I had met Don uh, Miller and we had a small group together. That's how I met Bob. So, I mean, all the relationships that you've asked about in terms of being in relationship, yeah. it's just been all friends. It's been all this very non-planned out, just showing up, saying yes mm-hmm. to things and then allowing God to just take it. And it's been wow. really quite a fun ride. It's so cool. And I, I almost wanted to pause and interrupt at each stage in the journey, like just found myself wanting to know about <laughs> the time in Turkey and yeah. wanting, you know, what it looks like to have that religious experience before being a Christian in the backdrop of your life. Because I know some of the work you've done overseas in uh, war-torn regions, in yeah. conflict regions, have looked like building bridges to people of other religious faiths and saying, how do we actually fulfill the mission of Jesus in partnership, which is like a mind-blowing concept to think about, I think, for some. And uh, so, you know, like, you know, but then you yeah. start talking about people like Don Miller and Bob Goff, and then I'm like, oh, I want to chat about Dream Big, and what does it look like to journey with a guy like that who's just on these adventures? And uh, and then you're talking about Bible Project, and Bible Project is just so mind-blowing. So I don't know. I'm just going to pick <laughs> one thread. <laughs> Even it. though I want to chat about it all, and we'll just see how far we go. Um, Can I say this, Jason? I, I think with the whole Turkey thing, I will say that the link, whether or not you want to go there or not, um, for me, because my experience of coming to faith and following Jesus was not a, like, there was a moment for sure in Turkey where I felt lifted and carried up by God for the first mm-hmm. time in my entire life. I couldn't put words on it. I just, I definitely had a, an experience, um, if people are okay with that that language. Yeah. Um, that said, I would say that following Jesus has been a long path. I don't, I don't mm. have a conversion moment where I can tell you, you know, this is when I prayed the prayer. I just started saying, I want to follow Jesus. And then it's been years in the making. Wow. And that's impacted the way that I relate when I'm over in Somalia or over in Iraq, where I'm like, it's not about this moment that I need to get them to. It's about mm. introducing them to the person of Jesus and talking about the person of Jesus and learning from them, being a listener even in their experiences, um, in their own faith, and and having that, and just knowing that, listen, God's the one that saves people, not mm-hmm. Mike. And so as long as I'm just, you know, a part of the process of, of introducing them to, the, to who Jesus is and the kingdom of God, then I feel like God's going to do his thing. So That's amazing. It's so amazing. Um, it reminds me of that C.S. Lewis picture. You know, he talks about... He goes, some people go on a train from like London to Paris. Yep. And if they're awake, they know the moment they crossed over. Yep. But some people wake up in Paris and like, I just know I'm not in London anymore. Totally. You know, and that sounds like how your story of faith came about. Absolutely. Yep. And other people are like, I was at this crusade or had this conversation. Totally. And it's such different stories and such different experiences. I didn't, I wouldn't tell people that I wasn't a Baha'i. I actually thought I was a (laughs) Baha'i that was following Jesus. For for (laughs) years, for two years, I didn't know that you couldn't... (laughs) I, mean, I didn't know that that wasn't a thing. I just like, I was a Baha'i and then I was reading the Bible and learning about Jesus and trying to follow him as, a, mm. as my, you know. And so I just feel like we've got to allow people to go through the transition moments and not just rush those moments and try to get mm. them into this like Romans Road type life. We've got to get them here. I think it's just this beautiful, it's like a relationship. You know, I, I didn't I didn't propose to my wife the day that I met her, even though I probably could have and wanted to, but I didn't, you know. It was a it was a progression. Hmm. I know a big part of your story was is doing missions work through the local church. And I think that one of the interesting things, there's a couple kind of cultural things happening within the church. A generation past 
within, within some streams of church, put a lot of money and resources to global missions. And there was an ethos and a methodology around there that's been appropriately critiqued and challenged, but there was a real thrust towards it and passion, sending missionaries around the world, massive amount of resources. And one of the interesting things is the way that maybe the next generation, millennials or Gen Z, is interacting with global missions is quite a bit different. In one mm. sense, there's a, like a unique passion and bend towards justice, mm-hmm. um, but there is also sort of a shying away from um, certain aspects of, of global missions. And, and I think there's a, a question of like, what will the future of global missions within the church look like? Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, as you reflect on some of your experiences and then you observe because you're, you're engaged globally, and it's, it's a generic question because every region is so different. But I wonder if you have any thoughts about what this next wave of global missions as millennials take leadership of churches could look like. Yeah. I, you know, one thing I'm seeing with millennials that's amazing that I love is that they ask questions, and they're, mm. they, they, list, you know, they're, they try to learn. They don't feel like they're just coming in with all the answers. I feel like that was a bit of the generation, and I can include myself in that older generation because it was a part of that for a little bit where we would show up and feel like, okay, we've got this. We can fix this. We can help. We can build the school. We can do these things. And almost like we're, we're coming in as the authority. Hmm. And I feel like what I've seen from the millennials in a, in a beautiful way is let's work with the indigenous leaders on the ground. Let's learn from them on what this looks like and, and how we can just help support and, and what do they need and, and actually serve the local communities. That's been beautiful to see. You know, as an example, you know, there was a church that we helped plant in Zimbabwe. And I remember showing up, we, we brought communion cups, those little plastic cups that, you know, like churches yeah. would have. And we brought those with us in our big duffel bags. And, you know, we, we started this church or we helped start this church. And we did communion in these little cups. And I remember coming back probably about eight months later and uh, they weren't doing communion anymore on Sundays. Hmm. And I was like, oh, guys, what's going on? How come we're not doing communion? And they were like, oh, well, we ran out of those cups. And hmm. what I realized is like they, we taught them that this is the only way that you should be doing communion. Even without saying that, it's how they perceived it. And so instead of working with the locals to, and explaining and talking and learning and going, what's happening in your culture and how do we... In- you know, the, the Jesus culture is so much bigger than the Western one. And so how do we learn from these incredible mm. cultures globally? And I think the millennials are going to do an amazing job of that. Hmm. Um, you've, you've been doing some work in regions like Iraq and Somalia. And I just, I would just love just a little window into what yeah. you're learning and what you're seeing and what mm. the needs are. Well, Here's what's crazy. So in Iraq, um, we're up in, in the uh, northern part, up in the Kurdish region in Kurdistan. And uh, what's crazy is, is that faith for them is just a part of their fabric. If you don't talk about your faith, you're hmm. weird. Like it's just, it's your everyday. It's, it's, their, it's their faith. And we often are so careful about talking about our faith. And and are we allowed to share about our faith? Are we allowed to sit down with this Muslim and talk about Jesus? And what am I going to say? And all those thoughts are just so bizarre to them because they're just like, if you don't talk about your faith in Jesus, then I don't even know if I trust you. Hmm. Like, I don't care if it's about Jesus or about Buddha or about Muslim, but like if, if you're not talking about, like it's not woven into who you are, then I don't, I don't trust it. And so we had to coach and teach the folks that, were, that we were bringing over to go, it's okay to talk about your faith. Wow, that's so fascinating. But here's the thing. Don't talk about it like you're trying to 
convince them of something. Right. If you're, if you're not willing, I would tell folks, I'm like, I don't want you talking about your faith if you're not willing to sit and listen about theirs mm-hmm. with the same type of authentic listening that you're hoping they're going to give you. And so I had to like kind of go, I want to learn about Islam. I want to learn about their faith. I want to learn about what, you know, and I would ask the questions like, what's been the most impactful thing Muhammad has done for you? What's been mm-hmm. the most impactful thing? Like, tell me about these moments. And what was crazy is then they would ask you about yours and they would go, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about where you read that. Tell me about where that comes from. This comes from the Quran. And the conversations were incredible and beautiful when we opened ourselves up to that type of dialogue. Hmm. I think it's, it's so interesting because there's a real unlearning. I think for me, this, this pressure to um, move the dial in a conversation, like to mm. a certain outcome. And uh, that pressure can often prevent us from doing the very thing we want to do, which is extend love. I've heard someone say listening is loving. Yeah. And uh, I think we do carry the words of life. And so I love the opportunity to share, yeah. um, but, but to also love and model the fruit of what I'm sharing by listening. But it yeah. isn't unlearning. And I think for a lot of us, there's that pressure and so it's so interesting hearing you frame that. But then even also talk about a culture that's like, it's okay to talk about your faith. It's so different than what we typically experience. Like in the yeah. Canadian context, the fabric is, um, well, you know it, man. You know it. You're in Portland. It's not very much different. It's kind of like, how dare you even share right. that and imply that you've got some sort of truth that's guiding your life as if it should guide mine. It's like offensive. Yeah. How has that informed your, your, your talking about faith here? How well, has that kind of, that experience informed how you engage people here today? It totally has, because what I've learned is, is that people actually are okay with you talking about your faith, as long as you're not trying to convince them that, that that's what they need to do or be a mm. part of. And, and that's where I think the shift is, is I actually don't need to convince anybody. If I'm doing a good job of being, I mean, leaders are listeners, in my opinion. So if I'm mm. trying to be a good job of a leader and I show up as a listener I, I've never had in those type of authentic moments somebody go, dude, I don't want to hear about your Christianity because it's not coming hopefully from a place of like, I need to tell you something so that you get better. I need to tell you something mm-hmm. so you get and, – and I know that's controversial probably in the Christian world because they're like, well, we do have something that's going to make it better. But I, I think that that's not what draws people in. The mm-hmm. same way that if somebody if – if a Muslim or a Buddhist was sitting down with you, Jason, it's not going to be very attractive if they just are like – okay, I need to convince you why you need to become a Muslim. And let me tell you all these things around that. That's not convincing. But when I meet a Muslim who's like the best father that I've ever seen and is literally taking every penny that he has that he's made in his business and starting a hospital in Saran and he's caring for the sick and the orphan and when when refugees come in, they're open arms, I start going, there's something about your faith that is really amazing and beautiful. And I want to learn more about it. I'm drawn to that. Like, I'll be honest, mm. I've had moments of like, you know, I trust in my faith in Jesus, but like there's moments where I'm just like, I actually really want to know what's making that guy tick because yeah. he is one of the people that looks like Jesus more than anybody I've ever met. And so mm. I need to, I want to, I want to learn about that. And so that draws people in. And I think it would draw people in here in Portland and in Vancouver if, if we lived that out and, and spent a lot of time listening. And then I think we'd have a lot of freedom to talk about our faith because they wouldn't be threatened. Hmm. How do you think church leaders today can inspire their congregation to get caught up, like individuals to get caught up in 
in mission locally or globally? Like, I just mean like, there's a sense where it's like, how do we even help move people forward? I'm just curious, like practically how is, you know, what would you suggest that we can do to help engage particularly the next generation yeah. in in giving? I think giving is important. Like we yep. need resources to build hospitals, to yep. plant churches and, uh, and going to be part and building friendships yep. and learning and growing through those friendships, but then also even locally, like seeing the needs around and responding. How do we begin to move people forward in that journey? Yeah. I mean, one thing for churches, and this was big for us at Bridgetown, um, was that we we knew that just if somebody goes over to Zimbabwe, they're all of a sudden not going to become a quote-unquote missionary. That's mm-hmm. not going to make them one. If they're not doing that in their own backyard, they're not just be- a plane ride is not going to change that in them. And so we had to coach people here. Like, if you're not wanting to help orphans here in Portland, then, like, I don't actually want you going to Zimbabwe. Like, mm. it's got to be, it's more than just going on a trip and getting some photos. That's just, if, if that's what you're doing, then go on a vacation. But you, we need to incorporate that into our daily life. So we had everything that we did globally, we did locally. If we worked with sex, sex trafficking victims globally, we worked with them here in Portland. If we're going to do mm. orphan care globally, we're going to do foster care and orphan care here in our own city. If we're going to do refugee care in Iraq, we better be doing refugee care here in Portland. And so... The idea was is that it's got to become a framework of your discipleship, not just this thing that you do for two weeks. And so that's huge. I think that's important for churches to figure out that like kind of circular motion. Yeah. And and then the other is, um, and you guys do such a good job with Alpha at doing this, but like we need to model that we don't need to have all the answers. Hmm. I think people are afraid to talk about their faith because they're afraid that they're not going to have the answers to the questions that are going to come up. And that completely like, you know, makes us freeze. And that's our fault as leaders. We get up on the stage and we feel like we need to have all the answers. We're not good at saying, I don't know, or let's learn that together, or let's look at a couple different, here's some different thoughts and like, let's make some. So I think we need to, as leaders, model the safe place to ask questions and not have all the answers and have that kind of dialogue. And that I think would free up our young people to, you know, be unleashed into the cities and just have these great conversations that they don't feel the pressure of, of needing all the answers. And if they don't, they go, let's go learn that together. Hmm. Oh, man, I'm so impacted by that idea of having that, that, that relationship between local and global. Because um, I've, I've heard people polarize it. And I think maybe my concern is like, it's like, oh, no, I'm about global. Yeah. You know, uh, or I'm, you know what? You know, there's this thought that, and I really believe in indigenous missionaries, that the best people to reach their community are, is the community themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I've also seen the fruit of resources and support and encouragement from a global community coming alongside. And so I don't want to like shut the door on global work. And for you to integrate those things and say, hey, this is not about polarizing them away from each other, but actually there's an integrated way of approach. That's very compelling. Yeah. And how did you guys discover that? Or how did that become a conviction in the community for you? Uh, I mean, Imago was a big part of that for me in my own kind of um, path. They were very big on the local. They weren't doing much global, so they were doing a lot locally. And then Mm. I went to Solid Rock, and it was at the time, it was all about, like, how do we get this global? And so I had this personal tear of, like, okay, I care about the local because Imago has helped me, like, birth in that ministry. But now I've got this call for global, and... I think it just, I mean, I can't say I thought of it. I just think it happened. I wish, yeah. you know, it, but it was one of those things that, and we also saw that people would go on trips. You hear, if you talk to people that go on trips, um, 
you know, there's this hilltop experience and then they come back to their town and they're just like, what do I do with my life now? Like I had this big experience, like it's almost like camp and they don't know what to do. Um, and they keep thinking about wanting to just go back to the place that they were. And I felt like we needed to create a bit of a space where it's like, you can go serve orphans in Zimbabwe. And then you come back and you're like, what do I do now? And I go, great. We've got this incredible foster care uh, hmm. system that we can support. And that doesn't mean com- becoming a foster parent. There's so many other avenues for us to serve orphans here in our own city. And and that just created this, like, it was a daily thing as opposed to a, you know, once a year thing. Incredible. Well, hey, we're going to jump back into this conversation in just a second. But before we do, I want to share a little bit about the work of Compassion Canada. As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a massive impact on our whole world. And this includes the global development work to combat the effects of poverty. And so I want to highlight the work of Compassion because they're on the front lines of global development, serving the most vulnerable who are experiencing the most negative effects of food shortages and decreased access to education. We have an opportunity as a local church here in Canada and beyond to continue to partner with organizations like Compassion who are aiming to relieve poverty and respond effectively to the negative repercussions of this pandemic in our world. For my wife, Rach, and I, we've been on a journey over time with Compassion. It began first with child sponsorship program, and then it's grown over time. And what's encouraged us the most and what we found really meaningful is that as we discovered more and more about the DNA of Compassion, we found out that they work specifically with local churches. Like they are passionate about the local church, deep in the values and culture of Compassion Canada and their global partners is a desire to work with the local church in the regions around the world so they can bring development, service, and holistic care all in the name of Jesus and in a way that lifts up the churches in that community. And that's one reason, amongst many, why we're so excited to partner with Compassion on this podcast. Here's the picture. Here's the dream in our heart. What if churches in Canada were able to support churches around the world who are reaching the most vulnerable? Compassion can be a bridge for us to do just that. So I want to encourage you, reach out to the team at Compassion and find out more about what they're up to, specifically in the midst of this pandemic. Find out what it means or what it could look like to build a bridge with Compassion to support local churches around the world as they reach out to the least of these in Jesus' name. You can find out a ton more about this at ccln.ca slash compassion. Okay, let's jump back into today's conversation. I'd love to chat a bit about your friendship with Bob Goff. Now, I know not everyone listening necessarily knows Bob, but I think a lot of people sure. have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for those that don't know him, just give it a Google search and you can watch a, a talk or something. But Bob's an incredibly compelling force of love. And I think he embodies a lot of things we're talking about. And I just want to know, um, yeah, a bit about how you guys got connected and some of the work you guys have been doing together over the years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bob's, it's been a friendship, which has been really nice. We met, I met through Don. So Don Miller had met him through a kayaking trip up in Canada, um, random, had kayaked by his place um, up at his lodge there next to Malibu and, you know, happened to meet him. And this was when he was a lawyer up in Seattle. Um, he hadn't started doing a ton of the global work yet. He was working in India a little bit and wanting to start doing some work in Uganda. And then we had met, because Don and I had started this nonprofit together called The Mentoring Project that was about mentoring kids growing up without dads. And... Um, Bob just, Don, I remember when Don came back from that trip and he's like, Mike, I've met someone who's been more of a father to me in one day than, than wow. anybody. And it was just this, and you know, if you've met Bob or you've seen him, I mean, that's just who he is in, in real life, you know? And so, uh, 
yeah, that just became a friendship that then we started traveling together and, and you know, our, our wives became friends and it's just kind of become, it's much more of a friendship than it is a, a working uh, type thing. But I will say this, I'm going to tell you a Bob story that no one's heard. And, and this is the thing that for me, I've continued to learn from him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a student, I'm a, uh, you know, we were in Uganda and this was a number of years ago. And, um, you know, Bob helped put away this witch doctor that had, done some really gnarly stuff to this kid um, in Uganda. There's still a lot of witch doctors in Uganda that sacrifice children for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Usually it's to help, you know, make businesses better and they bury stuff underneath the foundation of the businesses. It's really wild. And it's still happening today. So this is not, you know, um, a thousand years ago. So this guy, Kabi, gets put into maximum security, lifelong prison. But Bob, typical fashion is like, it doesn't end there. I'm going to start visiting Kabi in prison. Like Jesus tells us to visit our enemies and like Kabi's about the biggest enemy I know in my life that I actually know. So I'm going to start visiting him. So we would start, we would go to the prison and we would spend time with Kabi. And um, Kabi at one point even was started talking about his favorite Bible verses and like he was coming to faith. It was this really miraculous, amazing story, which is a whole other story. But we show up one day and Kabi doesn't have any shoes. We're dressed up uh, in, in suits at this point because we got another meeting. Um, we show up and Kabi doesn't have any shoes. And Bob asks the warden, how come he doesn't have shoes? And he goes, well, he doesn't have any family to give him shoes. That's how they get things in here. And I'm thinking, oh, I've been learning from Bob for years. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm from Portland. I'm from like Nike town. I'm going to go back to Portland. I'm going to get him a bunch of shoes. And the next time we come to Uganda, I'm going to like show up at this prison with a bunch of shoes. And I'm like, seriously, like, this is awesome. As I'm thinking that, Bob is taking Mm. off his shoes that he's wearing in that moment. And they're like, Alan Edmond, like $400 dress shoes, and he's <laughs> slipping them on to Cobby's feet. And we walk out of the prison with Bob and Sock feet. And what's crazy is our next meeting was with the president's wife of Uganda, Janet Museveni. So we show up at the presidential palace to meet with Janet and Bob's in Sock feet. And he could care less. Yeah. And that was just such a, you know, it was a reminder that like it, action, love is an action and it's in the moment and you don't think about it and you've just... It's helped me like when somebody comes to, you know, when you come to my brain in the middle of the day, I'm going to call you. I'm going to send you a video message. I'm going to do something because I don't want to miss those moments mm-hmm. that potentially God is placing on my heart to reach out to those people. And, and Bob's been an incredible at, at just modeling that in his real life. I think a lot about that line you said, um, how Don experienced him like more of a dad in a moment. And I think... And please forgive me because that, yeah. my story isn't growing up without a dad. And I know that's part of your story. And so please just interrupt me or correct me. It's like, yeah. I feel like there's a generation that doesn't know what it is to have a dad. Um, when you said that line about them sacrificing kids to build businesses, I thought, oh, we do that in America. It just looks different. Yeah. Um, and so people, and, and I just think that, we, so we also struggle to know how to relate to an older generation, yeah. as young men and women, how to like come under leadership and how to see loving leadership or people that, and I just wonder what you could, I don't even know what I'm asking, man. I'm just, I just feel like there's such a big need to learn to spot a Bob and maybe they're not as big as a Bob, but say, I want to. I'm going to approximate to that person. I'm going to take, if I can, it's going to Uganda with them. I'm going to get close to them. I'm going to come underneath that because we need that. I just, could you just give us a little window into that, that experience and just what, what does it look like to go to realize our need for 
uh, mentors and yeah. father figures or mother figures, and then to give ourselves to that because it doesn't just happen on accident. It doesn't, and you honestly, you have to ask for it in some way, shape, or form. I mean, with Bob, I just said yes to everything. I had a rule with Bob. I talked to my wife about it. I said, you know, are we okay with this? But I just, anytime that Bob or Maria ask us for anything or ask us to do anything, the answer is just yes. We'll figure out how to make it happen down the road. But it was getting in proximity, not because Bob was this, like, he hadn't written a book yet. It wasn't, you mm. know, most people didn't know who he was um, in that sense. And, but I just knew I, I had a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And I've done that throughout my life because I didn't have a dad. I've had to see, search out mentor figures to get to that place. And I would say to the younger generation, like, ask for it. Like, find some people and just sit down and go, would it be okay if we get together once a month? And, and what I would do, this is, I'm sorry, I'm going off camera for a second. I'm getting my notebook because I actually, the first mentor I ever had is this guy Lane from Joey's. He's still with Joey's. Um, and I have in the back of my notebook notes for Lane. And anytime mm. I have a question that I just feel like Lane would be a good one, I write it in here. And then when the page is full, I give him a call and I drive up to Vancouver or Seattle and I go, all right, buddy, let's sit down. And I go through the list. So I'm driving the conversation and I'm driving the, the pull. I think too often um, we wait for that to happen. Like we're mm. like, I want someone to pour into me. I need a Paul. I need someone who's going to like disciple me. And, and I would say you need to go out and, and get that. You need to ask for that. You need to look around. Who are the people that – and just call them up. I honestly have almost – I don't think I've ever said no to anybody who's been like, hey, could I get together once a month if I bring the questions and I bring the notes? Would you be willing to meet with me? Absolutely. Like every mm-hmm. single day. Um, what I don't want to do is I don't want – like let's not meet and I'm coming with the content. Right. And I'm having – you know – um, but you come with what you're struggling with and what you're needing. And I would tell every young person out there, even if they have a father or don't, find a few people that you can do that with and, mm. and do the work uh, because I, I still have that with Lane and that was 20-something years ago, you know, and I've got that with Bob. I've got a handful. I've got three or four that I just, you know, know I'm going to reach out to. Hmm. One of the things that I know you've done with Bob is, uh, you know, build a framework to help people move like maybe they got a dream in their heart maybe they don't even know how to name it and then actually move it to a place they've named it and they move into some actual action with their life and i think you guys call it the dream big framework yeah and that looks like workshops in person uh some content online modules but also coaching and uh, i want to just uh learn from you about what you've learned about helping activate other people's Mm -hmm. dreams and ideas yeah i mean it's pretty uh, Here's what I would say. It's a lot simpler than I originally probably thought. There's just, and it's why we've got a bit of a framework. And I don't mean it that you need to just sit in that framework, but there are some sticky points along the way that cause us not to chase after or try or do things. There's some limiting beliefs. You know, Bob calls it limiting beliefs, but we all have them where either something in your childhood or something along the way, somebody told you that you can't do this or you're not good at this. And that has made a rut in your neural pathway that when you go to start something, that voice is there or that feeling is there. And we really try to unlock that and figure out like, and that's like, what is that? And like, let's, let's speak truth over that because there's a bunch of lies um, that, are, that are in there. You know, an example is that when I was out in India, and I, maybe we don't have time for this, but when I was in India, we were building a, a school in this area. And um, we were out in the bush and the, our, the band that we are in uh, slid off the road because it was really muddy. So my Indian counterpart, Roshan, goes and gets, uh, literally goes out into the bush and gets an elephant. 
this guy and an elephant to come and lift the van out of the, the muck. And the elephant had this chain around the leg um, of, the, of the elephant, but it just was attached to nothing. It was just like this little chain that dangled. And I asked the trainer, like, what's that about? And he said, oh, this is how we train elephants. When they're young, we put a chain around them and we put a, a, a stick in the ground and they can't go anywhere. And they learn really quickly that if that chain is around their leg, they're not going to take off. They just can't wow. go anywhere. As they get older, all you need to do is put the chain around their leg and attach it to nothing, and their memory tells them they can't go anywhere. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is my life. Like how many chains that are invisible, that aren't attached to anything anymore, are still there when I you know, believe that I'm not good enough or that no one's going to love me because my dad left when I was three? Or you know, X, I mean, I could go through a list of things that are like my limiting beliefs that have caused me to not be able to, to try things. And I think we've all got them. And so one of the main things is just helping people figure out what are their limiting beliefs? Why haven't they, why have they gotten stuck in some of these? And um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a bunch of other ones, but I think that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. one of the big ones. I think that's been a, that's the sticky point that if you can get over that and try things um, and be willing to fail, we are, we are in a culture that is afraid to fail because we're so public in our social media and everything yeah. else that, you know, we're afraid of being canceled, you know? And so this idea of like not failing, uh, I think is going to, I have the potential that in the next five years, 10 years is going to be a massive problem. Yeah. We have to become okay with failure. And, uh, you know, in, in Haiti, they've got a saying, I'm going to fall, but I'm going to fall forward. Hmm. Like it's okay to fall. I'm just going to fall forward and learn from this and keep, keep going and, uh, and that's something that I think that we are really missing in our culture right now. Yeah, I, I think about it in the context of the church a lot because while there's some things that should never change about the church, you know, opening the Bible, helping people understand it, praying for people, marrying people, burying people, like there's just some core things that should never change. I'm not yeah. talking about changing the foundations, but there's a real sense that innovation um, new creative partnerships, partnering across denominations or tribes. There's all these buildings that are owned by some denominations, but they're struggling to fill it with people. And then there's new upstart church plants trying to meet in movie theaters. And there's these resources, but they're not working together. We need yeah. new frameworks, like yeah. new ways to think, new ways to see business and church interacting in a healthy way to see mission happen. And man, we need new ideas. And I think that it's so scary to because I, okay, I I love the local church. I hope that everyone listening yeah. knows this. I don't feel like church is a safe place. And I mean church like one church leader to another, yeah. that we've made it safe to try new things I agree. and fail doing it. Yeah. And so I think we need like a, a real uh, revolution of knowing what are the core things that we're not changing. And that stuff is like, it's clear, but what is the stuff that we're like, we've got to think about new ways and celebrate one another as we give it a go. Yeah. Uh, but people listening right now, they've got dreams in their heart for their local church. But it's like just to even name those or take a step towards them feels terrifying. Totally. Because if, the, I mean, it's such a vulnerable place and we've made it, we've made it, and I'm a part of that. We've made it not a safe place to, to, to try that stuff and to do that stuff. And so I, what, you know, I heard a long time ago, it's an old saying, you know, what happens in the pew, like, you know, makes its way into the, uh, into the chair. And so, I mean, there's like that whole, um, We've got to model this. We've got to model. Mm. I, I don't know if there's been enough of us that have been able to be super vulnerable in these types of places. Like, 
you know what? The, the biggest thing that's happened in my life in the last three years is I screwed up so bad with my wife. It was the, it, 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 like, I hurt her. We, it had a massive conflict. We had four weeks that I wasn't sleeping in our room, that I was in the guest room. Um, I, uh, I needed to go to therapy and counseling. But it has been the thing that's unlocked our relationship to a mm-hmm. whole other level because we've been able to get vulnerable. I've been able to talk about, you know, my issues and my struggles and why I don't know my feelings or communicate those and where that comes from. And so we're not telling those stories on stage or, or in, you know, these types of environments. We're often using this to, you know, share how smart we are, how good we mm-hmm. are, how, you know, all those kind of things. And so, I don't know, maybe we just need to model better that mm-hmm. vulnerability and the failures that it's okay, that it's going to be often the, the conflict and the failures that cause us to, to grow the most. And that's going to hopefully create permission for um, the people that we lead to step into those similar stories. And so hmm. I'm a part of that. I need to, you know, I need to do better at that. And hmm. um, yeah, that would be my encouragement. I appreciate that a ton. One of the most innovative things that I've seen happen broadly around the churches around the world is come through the Bible Project. Hmm. You know, I, when did it start? Was it about 10 years ago or was it even a bit more seven. than that? Yeah, seven years ago, actually. Okay. Younger than that. We're still a new yeah. little baby for sure. Okay, so seven years ago, I remember seeing like a Kickstarter or something about yep. we're going to go, we're going to do books of the Bible, we're going to do summaries. And it was kind of like, you know, we're going to do this high quality, we're not going to compromise. And it probably, like it was met with some support, obviously, like people got behind it early on, but it was yeah. also met with a lot of like, you know, is this worth the time? Is it worth the money? Like, all these kind of things. And now today, the Bible Project is one of a few ministries that are serving the local church, serving Christians and non-Christians around the world at a scale beyond anything, operating in that digital space, refusing to charge for it. I mean, it's a completely different model. And yeah. so I could talk all day with you about the Bible Project. I'm such a fan. I know, I think we're going to have Tim Mackey yep. jump on this podcast yep. in some weeks. So that's exciting. But tell us a little bit about the Bible Project and some of the stuff you guys got going on and what's exciting you the most right now in your work. Yeah, I mean... So yeah, Bible Project started seven years ago um, with the whole, you know, idea to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so the whole meta narrative, and, and Tim will get all geeky on that, which I love. He's my, you know, my favorite Bible nerd, and he's so good at communicating that stuff. So ask him all those questions. But, um, <laughs> you know, the heartbeat around from the from the board, from Tim and John and, and Steve and, and a number of the others it's always been from a place of generosity, and that's the thing that drew me to it, is that, um, you know, we're just going to give this away. We're never going to charge anything for it. Um, and if, listen, if people don't give to it, then they don't want it. And so mm-hmm. if they don't want it, then we're not going to make it. Like, it was a very easy, like, it's not around our identity. If things stop, if we stop getting money tomorrow to make these videos, we'll just stop making the videos. Because mm-hmm. it's a clear showing that people don't want them anymore. And that, and that would be all right. But... In this moment, it feels like people really want them. And uh, so we're continuing to do that. The thing that I'm most excited about, and maybe that's because of my global background, is that we also are making these videos in 60 other languages, fully localized, meaning we're not just dubbing over or doing um, subtitles. We're redoing the art. We're reanimating everything. We are using voice actors that are from that country, in that country. We find studios that are actually in that country. So we've got, you know, 50 studios around the world that are working on these type of products. Um, and, and it's just that's been the most exciting and encouraging thing to see 
Um, mm. You know, our Spanish channel and our Brazilian Portuguese channel, like they own it, it's theirs, they're running with it, and it's being given away. And if you've ever traveled, which you have, I know, Jason, around the world, you know, one thing that's very, um, there's just not a lot of is, is good Bible resources yeah. done in their context and language. You know, I, I go to Myanmar and I, I help with a theological school there, and they've got 12 books for their whole school. It's the only 12 books they were able to smuggle in there, you know, 10 years or whatever, however long ago it was. And that's what they've got. And that's all they're using. And so this is incredible for me that there's a free resource that literally everybody has access to. Um, and yeah, it's been so much fun. It's incredible. Can you give me a sense of the scale, like of, you know, total views, sure. how many videos? Give me a sense of the scale of this thing, because I don't oh, think gosh. some people realize just how... Uh, broadly, this content is being consumed. Yeah, I mean, as of right now, I if I pulled up YouTube, generally speaking, there's about 180 countries that in this moment are watching a Bible Project video. So that's pretty crazy when you think of just in this exact moment, 180 different you know countries are represented from people watching it. Um, we average around 400,000 views a day um, every single day uh, of the videos, uh, which is you know, just again, humbling and crazy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, version, you know, is a big partner of ours with that kind of stuff. And so lots of people are reading the Bible while watching the videos. And that's a really exciting thing to see. I yeah. think there's maybe 150,000 views a day on version alone, which means they're doing that in the engagement of actually reading the Bible. Hmm. Um, yeah, 50 languages underway right now. Um, you know, we've got about 160 videos that have been made. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's just been a blast, you know? One of the things that I think stands out, oh, there's so much that stands out to me about Bible Project. One is there's a sense of, we're going to let the Bible do the heavy lifting. Like there's this really deep conviction that shows up in the way that the content, it's like, it's like, you're, it's like the, the writers are trying to say, we want to just say, this is what the Bible's saying, let yeah. it impact people. And I know a lot of non-Christians watch the Bible Project, a lot of Christians watch it. And yeah. multi-denominational. So it's not just like a Pentecostal thing. You know, there's, yeah. there's a Catholic audience, mainline audience. It's, it's very broad. Can you speak to that conviction? Because that doesn't happen on accident. There's a real deep value yeah. happening for you guys about lifting up the Bible and letting it do something to people and to a community. Yeah. I mean, there is definitely a reason why it's called the Bible Project and not the Theology Project. You know, um, and that's that, listen, we really are trying to just highlight. This is what the Bible said. This was the context in which it was set in. These are the people that it was written to in that moment. And and then it's your job as a church, as a community, as an organization, as an individual to take that and go, what does that mean for me today? But we're not going to necessarily do that for it. Like that's not, you know, we're saying, I want to I want to teach about the Bible. The Bible's crazy. It's such an incredible book. And if you have some understanding and context on how to approach it, uh, Man, it's just, it's lit me up. I've gone through seasons in my pastoral career where I didn't open the Bible at all. I was frustrated. I was angry at it. I had questions. I now, because of the Bible Project and Tim and stuff, like, I literally have writings in the side of my, my Bible, like, God, I, this makes me really mad. Hmm. I don't understand this. I don't get this. I, I don't, maybe it's because I don't understand the context. I don't know. But when, when me and you meet one day, I'm going to ask you about this. And not from an angry, but from a just like, it's okay yeah. to not have all those answers. And I feel like the Bible Project, John does a really good job of that. Tim's a like super Bible nerd and, and amazing. John, brilliant in the Bible as well, but he plays this part, and it's just who he is, in this 
question asker. Like yeah. he's he's a, he's willing to ask the question. He's willing to you know show up in that way, and he's creating permission. I think for all of us to approach the Bible with questions and to approach the Bible with you know all that kind of stuff. It's just it's a it's a crazy big book. So. I don't know. I've seen that be a very unifying thing where we've got Pentecostals and Baptists and Lutherans and Catholics and all these different, you know, uh, parts of Christianity that, you know, can approach the Bible together because it is unifying. We all Mm. have that in common and then figure out what that looks like inside their own communities. Mm. It's, I've heard just so many incredible testimonies, like from whether it's my own youth ministry at our church going through, uh, you know, them as like discussion starters, or I met one businessman that when he's getting a massage, he puts the Bible project down beneath, like he's got the face, you know, the thing and he puts it underneath. Yeah. 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 And so he watches like 40 minutes or 30 minutes of Bible project stuff. And then the masseuse is always asking questions though. And I just thought it was such a compelling picture where, you know, like she's like, so she's listening along and asking questions. I just thought it was such an interesting picture. I hear like stories about all over the world as a missionary to the city of Vancouver there's Vancouver behind me one of the big things is the bible's on trial not mm. just not just with non-christians with christians like sure. there are tons of young adults that are joining our church and they're just like I don't even know if I feel safe with that book and I think that's a big difference between maybe two or three generations before yeah I think there's a sense maybe a few generations ago because of we're in a more more of a, more of a Christian culture not as much in Canada but definitely in the states Christian culture but even you know 30 40 years ago where it's like you know there's no reason to doubt the pastor's opening the book right drawing some points from it just take it right. and receive from it now's the point where it's like it's like in math if you don't show the work like you got to show me the work and i feel yeah. like this is the gift of the Bible project where it's like trying to show the work and it's not afraid of going into some of the messier stuff, but also saying like, Hey, patiently, thoughtfully showing the work. And so man, just on behalf of a missionary here in Vancouver, I just want to thank you guys so much Mm. for um, taking the time to show the work on the Bible. And you're equipping me as a communicator of the Bible, but you're also like providing tools that I can give to people and point people towards. It's like, Hey, Mm. if I'm teaching on a text, Hey, you know, hey, we're doing a series on this book of the Bible. We're we're, we're launching the church through in the book of Revelation. I love it. And and we're going to point people like, hey, if you want a primer on the book of Revelation, check out this video from the Bible Project because mm. you know it's just an amazing resource. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, mm. And uh, really, like the the Bible's on trial, and you guys are saying not defensive in like a defensive way, but saying no, there's power in this book. We're going to approach it thoughtfully understand its literary context, but lift it up. And it's just an amazing gift, man. Mm. Well, man, that means the world to us. And we love, I mean, one story of people using the videos to be helpful is is honestly so much for us. So we're super thankful for that. And I think in Portland and Vancouver, they're very similar in that sense. Like, you know, how do we, how do we not get so fired up though to feel like we have to defend it? Like, can mm. we just sit in that tension of going like, you're right, it's a weird book. It's hard. Yeah. Come on it's in not, with me. Yeah, like, let's go learn this. Like, And let's be able to have those questions. But like, mm. I think we've just felt such a need to defend. And that's where we get into trouble. I mean, that's, I think that's why right now with the, with the science and, and religion, you know, that there mm. actually is overlap. You know, I think for a long time, it was like, those aren't going to agree. And we've got to go... You know, Genesis is a big example of that. I think the creation story, and I'm running out of time, the creation story to me is one of the most unifying stories in the world. We all came from the same place. We all came from the same creator. Like it's supposed to be this beautiful unifying starting point that actually brings us, in my mind, all together 
as mm. a as a humanity, as as you know who we are. And yet we've taken it and made it so divisive. Was it done in seven days? Is that a story? Is that literal? Was Adam made from the ground? Was Eve taken out of the rib? Is that literal? Is that a poem? Is that like we've taken it and just like made it this most divisive thing? Mm. And what it really is is to go, no, we all came from the same place. Like, can't yeah. we see that with one? So I think the Bible, when we try to defend it so much, can often end up splintering people off. And we need to figure out how yeah. do we hold it like this? Like, let's approach it with, you know, authority, but like also hold it with people going, it's a lifelong journey. You know, it's interesting. Like, I really appreciate what you did there. Like, because you, you like, you're reframing my own language, you know, and um you know, I use the language of the Bible being on trial. And and I think what I hear you saying, and I just appreciate the reframing, is like, it might be on trial, but we don't have to defend it like a trial lawyer. We can invite people into it. You know, yeah. it's like, it doesn't need our defense in that sense. We can invite people into it. And I, I, I really appreciate that reframing, man, because mm. it is, and I think as followers of Jesus, like, we believe it's like, it's a book that needs explaining and research and all that stuff. That's what Tim and the team are doing so well. But it's also a book that's been anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's that X factor where it's like we can bring people into it. Yeah. And that takes the pressure off of our shoulders a little bit, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I, 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 Bob says all the time, but like God doesn't need a lawyer. He just doesn't. <laughs> he actually, they're the people that he blasts the most in the Bible, you know? So like, why are we so quick to jump into being God's or the Bible's lawyer when He's like, those are the people that I like usually don't want to, you know, hang out with. And so in my mind, it's, it's less about being, yeah, the lawyer and more about, um, you know, getting to love our neighbors. And I love to it. me, that, that gets played out in much different ways. I know that we're like pushing time, but I do want to just point out one more thing about the Bible Project and get you to speak to it. Yeah. I think there's a commitment to excellence and innovation that you guys are after. And I just want to hear a little bit about that in action because uh, that's risky to like to try new things with it because yeah. you guys have tried stuff that hasn't hit market or stuff yeah. you're working right now that you're like, hey, this might not make sense, but you're putting real resources yeah. behind it. And then there's also a sense of like, hey, there's a conviction to excellence while we innovate. And that's a, that's a dance. And I'd love to hear you speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I know John's conviction and heart with it is you know, Christians for the majority of our time have been leaders in communication and, and have been leaders in art and have been leaders in, I mean, the printing press was, was you know, built to do the Bible and get it out to more people. I mean, there's so many things that were invented and used to push the message forward. And we, in, in my opinion, we've kind of lost sight of that in the last little bit here. And uh, I know he's got a huge conviction to go like, no, we need to reclaim like art and communication and, and all of that um, and do it just, why can't we do it better than everybody else or at least as good as everybody else? Like, why can't we push that envelope? And, and with the deep belief that people will reward that and will want more of that. And I think that's just happened. You know, when the Bible Project started, it was, it was a project. It never was going to be this nonprofit that was going to make a whole bunch. You know, it was John and Tim and another dude, like, in their boxers in a basement, like, just <laughs> making videos and going, if it takes us six months to make one, it takes us six months. And if they want another one, then they'll fund it over the course of six months and we'll make another video. But it was never meant to be this, like, creating jobs and it just wasn't where it started. And so we had the privilege in the beginning to take all the time in the world to make something that was done really well and people have rewarded that. And so we're, we're not going to all of a sudden just stop that. We'll keep, keep pushing that envelope. And, um, 
yeah, I just think there's a lot of spaces we can enter into, like the education space, that we can change it. We can blow it up and do, like, what are the things that we could do that's just going to hopefully move the needle for every uh, department outside of even Christianity to look at? The app we're building right now, and I can't say too much about it, but the app that we're building right now, I think is probably going to be, and I'm not building it, so I feel like I can say this with a lot of humility, <laughs> I think it's going to be one of the best apps there is on the internet. Not not Christian app. I mean, like, just app, like education app, like it's going to be one of the best. And we're building it. It's, take, it's going to take two years from start to finish. And, and we're doing it with that kind of methodic, you know, um, uh, care to it because we want it to be something that's just going to last and do really well. Mm. Oh, I can't wait for it. I just, it's just so cool. I mean, I remember visiting the studio and being like, people know the Bible project for the output. But the organization has something to teach, I think, Christian organizations mm-hmm. as well in terms of clarity of culture, um, fighting for community, um, communication across the organization, clear focus, avoiding mm-hmm. mission drift. I mean, there's something unique. And I just maybe this is something we'll pick up with Tim or there'll be other times where you and I can chat where it's like there's I, I, I hope that at some point in time people get a window into not just the good work that the Bible Project is doing, but how do you build a team? That yeah. doesn't get distracted by a thousand other things that you guys could be asked to do. Say, this is the thing we're supposed yeah. to do, and we're going to do it excellently with focus and clarity. Um, I've never seen an organization, at least a Christian organization, operating with such focus, such clarity, and excellence uh, up close like that before. Well, it's hard because, I mean, when people come around with resources and ask you to do some things that are outside of maybe what you're doing, it's hard to say no. You know, And so I think you have to really know what you're saying yes to. The moment you know what you're saying yes to, everything becomes really easy to say mm-hmm. no to. If it doesn't sit in the yes, then it's a no, you know? And and to me, that's been really helpful. We know what we do. We make explainer videos about the Bible. That's like our mission, right? We're going we're gonna to help people experience the Bible's unified story, at least of Jesus. And that's clear. Now, when someone comes to us and goes, hey, we need to figure out discipleship in India and we've got a million dollars that we could give you to do it. It's like, that's awesome, but give it to an organization that's doing discipleship in India. They can use our videos for free to do the work, but that's not our, I love what it is. And it's a huge heartbeat of, you know, Jesus followers, but it's not our mission. We know Hmm. our part that we're playing and it's really narrow, but we're going to try to do it really well. And we're going to hopefully just give it away so that everybody else can do their job really well as well. Oh, I love it. Okay, one more thing I want to chat with you before we yeah. sign off. Uh, we chatted about this as we're chatting before um, we jumped on to record, and it was about you. And I just um, was commenting that you're like an activator. Like I've experienced in my own life, just when we chat, I leave more built up. But you've done mm-hmm. this with so many people, and then you've done it professionally as well. Like professionally, you've given yourself to a role within an organization like Bible Project where you're not Tim, you're not John but you're bringing lift or whether it was with, you know, solid rock or whatever church it was or with Joey's. And I just, and then you mentioned that you, there was a a moment or maybe it wasn't a moment, maybe it was just over time realizing how you're wired and who you're meant to be. And I just think that you describing that could be just, could set some people free that are listening right now. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it was a moment. Um, I would say that for the longest time I felt like success or to be a good leader meant that you had to be the person at the top or the person with the voice, or the person with the platform, or whatever it is. Like, that's what leadership was. Because that's what we saw. That's what I saw in the church. Like, right. the leader is the person that's on the stage. The leader is. And 
I was striving for that and coming up against, um, you know, roadblocks in, in my own inner core. And, you know, I know the moment when I realized, like, I'm actually built to be a really good number two or number three or number 10 or whatever it is. But I'm built to be a support and, yeah, be in part, a part of those conversations and help shape culture and help do all of that. But just as a, as a part of the team and and not necessarily as the person that's got the stage. And once I realized that, I, ha- I stopped fighting for those positions. Hmm. I stopped fighting for those moments. I stopped, you know, I, I used to say yes to every speaking gig that I could possibly get when it came to the church stuff because I felt like that was the road that I needed to take in order to then you know, write a book and do all those things. And I'm not going to write a book. I, that was the most freeing thing for me to realize is go, I don't want to write a book. I hate writing. Even though that's what every, you know, everybody would tell you, like, that's the next step. And dude, you got so many, st- I'm just like, yeah, but I hate it. I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to write a book. Cause I don't, I now know in my inner core who I am, what I'm built to do. And now I can show up at the Bible project and just get to be a great support to John and Tim and the team and whatever that looks like. And man, there's so much freedom in that to not clamor after the things that you aren't built for because culture's telling you that's what you should be doing. And, you know, I think, yeah, that's, that's been a huge learning lesson for me. Oh, I love it. I think that there are some people listening that their ability to settle into their unique calling is the difference between new ministries, new churches exploding with growth, exploding with opportunity. And what a shame it would be if we didn't all get to benefit from that because they're living into some other story of what yeah. it meant to be the, the, the lead pastor or the teaching pastor or the organizational leader. And I just think it's like, I, I think one of the movements we're seeing in the church that's really encouraging is this vision of, of team. Mm, yeah. Of being able to sort of say, I don't have to be all things. Yeah, uh, to lead this thing and to be able to see as a team, and it's just a really exciting picture. And uh, and you're a real inspiration, I think, for me and many others. Seeing people coming alongside, working within incredible organizations, bringing lift without feeling like you have to be all the pieces and have the spotlight. And it, you know, one of the I don't think it's the the thing that started it, but one of the outcomes is is that comparison goes away. Hmm. I mean, the most the most amount of freedom I've gotten in the last probably three to five years is the freedom from comparison because you're not striving for those things. So you're not looking at those people going, how am I going to get that many followers? How am I going to get that bigger of a church? How am I going to do this ministry? You stop comparing to all of that because you become more comfortable with the space that you're supposed to be in. And man, if I can encourage any, comparison is the big, in my mind is one of the biggest enemies that we fight, especially in this social culture that we're in right now. And, you know, God doesn't compare what he creates. And so we do it all the time. But, I mean, there's just, so I, yeah, I I think that was one of the biggest things. Figure out who you are. Figure out how you can live into that. Be okay with that. Stop comparing yourself. And, man, live in some freedom. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, I'm grateful for your time today, Mike. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Jason. This has been a blast. Well, 
Well, thank you, Mike, so much for sharing with us today. I love being able to sit down and chat with you. And Mike, as you heard in our conversation, is involved in so many different meaningful projects and organizations. So if you want to find out more about his work with Tim Mackey, The Bible Project, Bob Goff, and others, just head to our blog at ccln.ca slash blog. And all those links and our notes from this episode will be right at the top there for you to check out. But before I let you go today, I want to let you know that in the next couple of months, we're going to be releasing some bonus episodes of me sitting down with some different people from the team at Compassion who are currently giving their lives to working with the local church to respond to issues of injustice and response to the effects of COVID-19 on the global development work happening right now. And I'm so excited to share those conversations with you. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to go back and listen to our conversation with Allison Alley, the president of Compassion Canada, and also Sydney Muicio from Compassion International. We released both those episodes as part of our Justice Week a few months back. And in both those conversations, the two of them did such a good job sharing their own personal stories, but also painting a clear picture of the global need right now and how Compassion is responding and how we can get involved. And so if you want to find out more about the work of Compassion, how you as a local church leader can partner with their work, everything you need to know can be found at cclm.ca slash compassion. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you soon.